My name is Jared Rizzi, and this is At the Table. We're doing our second night of live debate coverage. We just heard closing arguments from the candidates for president a few moments ago. And for me, I, I want to reiterate the purpose of why I'm doing this, because there is certainly no genuine need for a new political podcast. There's no market demand for some other conversation that's out there. There's no need or or desire for uh, another straight white dude to be hosting a political podcast to expound opinions and tell you what he thinks because uh, as if that's somehow important. And we saw quite a bit of that uh, lack of importance or, or the reticence to embrace that importance on the debate stage tonight. The Democrats that we saw tonight, especially, I would think, uh, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, uh, and to a lesser degree, Pete Buttigieg and Michael Bennett, emphasized in a real and genuine way their emotional connection to the issues. It wasn't just, as we saw a lot of this last night, uh, th this sense that there was a, maybe this was the, the, the Elizabeth Warrenization of what we saw last night, but there was, there was less of a plan for that and more, here's why the problem needs to be solved, and here is the emotional way in which I'm going to convince people to solve it. That may be, depending on your mileage, more or less convincing than what we heard last night from these candidates. Ten candidates, as there were, down in Miami, Democratic National Committee debate. Uh, what we saw most notably, I think, is that uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, availed himself relatively as we expected. Senator Sanders performed almost entirely as we'd seen him on the stump. Same for Pete Buttigieg. Um, we saw him in a very political candidate way pushing out exactly what he's been saying on the stump, you know, these these same things that have appeared in his biographies, etc. Um, Andrew Yang, for all those moments that, uh, the, the few moments that they actually went to him uh, in the in the uh, participation last night, or tonight, uh, we really didn't see much beyond from him uh, his one note. He was kind of the Jay Inslee of tonight, if I may be so bold as to make that comparison. Besides the emotional impact, I thought there was a tackling of the issues in a less granular but more uh, direct human connection way. I'm thinking most specifically about the, the arguments that Kamala Harris made about criminal justice reform, the way she approached Vice President Biden, for example, on the question of racism and criminal justice or his work with segregationists, his um, his embrace of their legacy, the way that he's been willing to talk about their legacy on the stump in the last few days. All of those things were emotional impact. Even when we were talking about immigration, a lot of the highlights in terms of pure emotion that we saw last night, those uh, weren't repeated. I didn't hear anybody mention the the, the father and daughter that were uh, that drowned uh, on their way to Brownsville. That was, in so many ways, I thought it was sad in the sense that we saw how little those major stories have in terms of a shelf life in the Trumpified news cycle that we see in American politics right now. But here's. Here are some other takeaways that I wanted to mention, and this is taking notes all night tonight. We certainly heard a lot more about Donald Trump. We saw a lot more direct references to Donald Trump than we did 
uh, last night. Uh, Vice President Biden, in the first answer, he was the second question of the night. In the very first answer, he mentioned Trump, I think, at least three or four times. Uh, we saw the vice president, uh, former vice president, repeatedly bring up Donald Trump, and um, others were not shy from it as well, although certainly Biden took the most. Um, and, and really what people were emphasizing was the contrast on the field. Um, everyone emphasized that they have to be able to beat him to beat Donald Trump to to regain the the presidency, and that's something that they wanted to make sure that they were able to do. Everyone said that they're the only one who's really able to do it. Uh, there were certainly a few conversations to that effect, and some some disagreements over who is able to do that. I, I thought one of the 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 cheekiest, if if we can talk about it in that way, was a Congressman Eric Swalwell, who uh, was mostly trying to get attention. It seemed like on the far right side of the debate stage uh, as he as you were looking at him on the NBC broadcast he was on the far right in the orange tie um, he was trying to pick himself a fight with Joe Biden and essentially say oh yeah this is uh, th- this is a, a pass the torch moment uh, what are we going to do with this pass the torch I want you to actually pass the damn torch Joe uh, that seemed to be one of his moments where he was trying to gain a little bit of attention I, I want to mention, while we're talking about those who are tr- desperately trying to grab attention, I have to mention Marianne Williamson because uh, my note over and over again on my yellow pad here for her, every time she spoke, it was just uh, white lady nonsense or more white nonsense or, yeah, it's mostly that. Um, I'm not sure for whom she represents uh, an idealized candidate. Her closing statement at the end certainly spoke to something that we'd seen uh, at the last Democratic National Convention we saw in 2016. Love Trump's hate. You remember those signs if you saw it on C-SPAN or you, like me, were down there in uh, in the convention halls. Uh, but her kind of Phoebe from Friends or, I don't know, Space Cadet uh, Deliverance style, I'm not sure who that's for. Um, So if you happen to be a Williamson fan, can you please explain it to me? I'm not, I I don't understand what um, what the appeal is there. It was mostly, as far as I could tell, comedic relief and the moderators seemed to treat her as such which i think was um a small blessing in the context of the larger uh the larger debate um i'm jared rizzi by the way this is at the table a political podcast that i've started this week and i'm really glad to be able to talk to you and uh, also speak to you on uh, uh, as we're doing this live video but also uh as this podcast it's available right now on anchor.fm uh, i think it's also on spotify we should be able to be up on the regular uh the other regular platforms that people are uh, they use to enjoy their their podcasts in the next few days as we get this down the pike as quickly as we can uh, your patience is appreciated, and and uh, feedback is of course welcome. Not just here in the little chat window that we've got uh, in in this uh, Zoom app, but also if you would on Twitter at Jared Rizzi, where I've been uh, the entire time I've been on Twitter. Please feel free to let me know what you think and what you expect. But here are some other notes from tonight. And again, I'm just looking at because I was taking uh, taking some pretty fastidious notes. I thought, in terms of just airtime alone, I thought Michael Bennett was getting a lot more than you might have expected from someone who uh, was not near the center of the debate stage. I, I thought that he was not just getting more time, but also doing a lot more with it. His 
argument about the Holocaust, for example. There was an emotional appeal there about his mother's experience coming to the United States, the way in which she came, the reasons why she left and fled where she did, and making that emotional appeal, that contrast with Donald Trump. There was a great example of how we saw something that I thought was much more effective than what we saw last night on the debate stage where people were mostly talking in terms of nuts and bolts of their plans, but not necessarily getting a lot out there in terms of hitting the people in the heart and saying, this is why I have the experience necessary to make this movement forward. There are a few other things, though, that I – in the category of people who got a little bit more airtime than I was expecting, Governor Hickenlooper also pushing his way onto the to the, uh, the more of the center of the field uh, a little bit more. Uh, the, the moderators seemed to want to make his – uh, distinction about socialism more than it was. Uh, he was emphasizing the fact that he, and he mentioned this in his closing statement, I thought he said it most clearly there versus anywhere else, that he wanted to be the scrappy, uh, what was it, the, 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 the scrappy guy, the scrappy spirit with executive experience having done all these things. None of them, I, I, and certainly Colorado's got a, a record worth burnishing on, in those last moments, but by by putting yourself uh, so diametrically opposed to the question of uh, socialist policies, it feels to me like you are certainly certainly uh, against the the momentum of the democratic base. And obviously, anybody who's getting through this primary is going to have to appeal to those voters before they get to a general election. But Republicans are going to tarnish whoever is the Democratic nominee as a vile socialists, and and you've seen a lot of Democrats more willing to embrace the term. So I, I was very surprised that he, either he didn't bite down on it or that the moderators kept champing at the bit trying to make it happen. It didn't seem like it was going to actually get there, and, and it never actually did. Um, there were a few moments from Senator Sanders that I thought were were uh, pretty poignant as well. Uh, he was, of course, at the center of the stage along with Vice President Biden talking about as if essentially these were the two men to beat. Um, and each of them had a very different answer for the fundamental question that remained mostly unasked, except by the cheekiness of Eric Swalwell, which was, uh, why these old dudes? Uh, what do they bring to the conversation that we don't necessarily get from somebody else? Sanders' answer was a little bit more satisfying to me than Biden's, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to know your thoughts on it as well, which was that he said that it has to be someone with the guts. He kept emphasizing guts, the guts to take on the special interest, the guts to take on Mitch McConnell, the guts to bring the fight to Washington. That remin That's very reminiscent to me of the way that Donald Trump emphasized his, uh, his ability to uh, change Washington. That has not been effective necessarily in terms of actually getting things done, but it is certainly a message that resonates with voters. Well, whether it will resonate on the left side of the aisle in the same way it has on the right, that remains to be seen. Biden's answer to the question was very different. He was emphasizing his relationship with the previous administration. He kept saying our administration, the Obama-Biden administration. He was the one who was most referencing the former president as, as positively as possible. We actually saw at one point Kamala Harris very willing to say, here's a criticism I have of the administration. She was talking most specifically about immigration at the time. And, and so I look at these moments and I say to myself, Biden's answer was so different on the question of 
of of why I should be the one that you that you go with. And he swatted down Eric Swalwell by saying, you know, uh, I'm still carrying that torch. Aside from being um, a little gendered, and he certainly should maybe potentially avoid those kinds of uh, comments, uh, given where he's uh, been accused or or not accused necessarily, but uh, where he's kind of moved around in the space. You would think that maybe he would be a little bit more attuned to that, but maybe he doesn't think that he has to. There's one other difference that's worth mentioning, by the way, and if um, and if you're not there in the spin room, as obviously I'm not, uh, there was one thing that I thought was worth mentioning, which was that of all the candidates, 20 candidates of the last two evenings, 10 last night, 9 this evening are headed to the spin room to talk as they do. Candidates like to uh, go in there and say, oh, I'm. Uh, this is what I actually meant, and I want to clarify this, and here's a point that I didn't get to make because I didn't get enough time. And they talk to reporters in a barely exclusive way to try to get a little bit more time and a little bit more content for the uh, news broadcasts. The only person of those 20 candidates who didn't go who said that I'm not going to make myself available, former Vice President Joe Biden, trying to zag when everyone else is zigging, trying to say that I get to do this a little bit differently than everybody else. It's fascinating to me to watch the ways in which that he has been willing to say, I'm not going to play by the same rules, hasn't been as media available, hasn't made himself uh, open to questions, hasn't uh, done press conferences, hasn't done the same things on the stump, and and has uh, mostly in a very Trumpian way said that he's not going to answer questions, for example, about uh, whether he's doing X, Y, or Z wrong, and he kind of pushed back uh, in in a slightly dismissive way some of the criticisms that were being levied by Harris uh, and others on the debate stage tonight. So very different answers from Biden and Sanders about why they deserved to be there instead of some of the people who were younger or more diverse. Another interesting way that Sanders addressed this was uh, when he was asked specifically about the diversity question, Sanders emphasized that it has to be not just diversity, it also has to be guts. Again, that was his answer for everything. But as Donald Trump can prove, guts cannot, or, you know, I mean, you know, I shouldn't really say guts because his is, is kind of pure bluster, uh, not any genuine uh, courage, but but pure bluster. Uh, but the idea that you can just push your way through, tweet through it, as the kids say these days, uh, that is not necessarily enough. But it was the answer that uh, Senator Sanders seemed most willing to provide. Uh, th- there were a lot of people talking about gridlock. I didn't think that was very convincing. Nobody seems to have a good answer to what to, What do you do with a problem like Mitch McConnell, I think, would be the musical number uh, that I'm not willing to try to sing right now for uh, Mitch McConnell. Nobody seems to have a very good answer. And potentially because, as I mentioned last night, so many of these candidates are not running for Senate races, competitive Senate races around the country, and instead they're running on quixotic uh, presidential campaigns. Uh, there has been a real push and acknowledgement that the, that the incumbent is so vulnerable and that the presidency is so within reach that some of these candidates are just not interested in making uh, an argument for why they should go uh, for a smaller race. I was thinking about the Texas Senate primary we were seeing on display last night with uh, Castro and O'Rourke. 
Uh, I think about that in terms of uh, some of the Senate races that could be potentially uh, better served around the country with candidates. We, although I think, uh, in, in general, tonight these candidates were a lot more safe. I mean, we're talking about New York, California, Colorado. Not really a lot of the the, the most uh, difficult races around the country. There was there was a real argument about good ideas but no action. And again, for this, Sanders's answer was guts. Um, there was the willingness to push back. But there was a little bit more distinction among the candidates tonight. And there wasn't this crappy question from the moderator. Uh, Chuck Todd, who um, I think is earning everyone's ire for his recent interview of Donald Trump on Meet the Press, uh, had such a such a bad question, such a you know, right-wing bait question last night in the debate about uh, will you support confiscation? Just kept saying confiscation. Tonight it was a little bit more, and he didn't invoke the Parkland victims in such a ham-fisted way tonight either. But he did mention uh, they started with Congressman Swalwell's, uh, Swalwell's approach uh, and mentioned the gun buyback and then kind of went through from there. And there were some interesting questions, whether or not we would uh, take licenses away of sellers who violate the law like Harris or um, Sanders definitely being pushed as the, one of the more conservative on gun rights on the field by saying that he wouldn't uh, initiate a federal buyback, as an example. So there were some more interesting answers tonight on some of the fundamental questions. But I think there was, in general, uh, because these candidates had the benefit of seeing this done already before, uh, there were some better scripted answers on some of the emotional impact. And I started with that, and I want to mention it again, is that I just felt more connected to some of the answers on the debate stage tonight. And here I want to emphasize the person who I think shined the most brightly, and that is Senator Kamala Harris. Um, by far, the best answers on every single question hammering home exactly why she had that emotional connection and was willing to make the fight go where it needs to go. I cannot think of a place tonight where she did not come out on top. And despite the fact that people have been saying that this is Sanders and Biden to lose and that only these are the electable people, uh, I think that some of the uh, the, the, the female senators tonight, uh, we saw some really interesting ideas from uh, Michael Bennett as well. But in general, what we saw from Harris and to a lesser extent uh, Gillibrand, I thought were, were some really powerful emotional pleas that connected with me. And again, just from my personal perspective, but I but I want to push beyond that because this is a candidate who, by winning the Democratic primary, is going to face Donald Trump. You could not have a sharper contrast to who Donald Trump is and what he represents than the ex- uh, the, the, than the experienced record of a prosecutor in California. She mentioned her record there. She was passionate about making issues. She never talked about them in terms of pure nuts and bolts. She always talked about them in terms of how this would affect families, how this w- what was difficult for her as a prosecutor. It was it was so much more impactful for me. And I and I'd be curious. And we have some Q and A coming in now, so I'll, I'll answer some of those as I get them uh, about what who you thought did well because for me, Harris by far was the candidate who pushed herself out there and made real ground. She's already been rising in polls, uh, and we've already seen a lot of that momentum coming from Biden and Sanders. The uh, ostensible front runners. I think 
two things on this. One, the fact that their numbers are so low proves that it's mostly name recognition and it's soft. When I see these candidates in the low 20s, high teens, and in some polls, state polls, you know, uh, South Carolina potentially much higher, but when I see them in national polls or in most state polls that low, what that says to me is voters are shopping around for a better option. Well, they certainly saw some better options tonight. Not to say that Senators Biden, uh, Senator Sanders, rather, and former Vice President Biden didn't uh, comport themselves with a lot of dignity in class. And I actually thought they both had excellent nights. But in terms of who is going to make up the ground, who is going to burn up some of the oxygen in the room, to use a very gendered expression, who was taking up more space, I was glad to see an African-American woman taking up more space on the debate stage tonight. That was a great thing to see. And I thought that Kamala Harris made some excellent points. Uh, I mentioned earlier that she pushed back against Vice President Biden on the question of immigration. I want to now, I've complimented her, I want to take something away from her now because she emphasized, oh, as the head of the DOJ in California, uh, as the attorney general for the state of California, the second largest DOJ in the country, I did all these things that were different. Well, of course she had the ability to do all these things that were different. The Obama administration, if they had wanted to, could have stopped her, but they didn't because they knew that liberal California was probably going to do this, and they anticipated her resistance before that phrase became so uh, aligned with uh, an anti-Donald Trump movement. I, I, I'm not taking anything away from her on substance, and Biden certainly didn't acknowledge it as a problem, and he didn't – I think there was a lot less um, – cross-fighting, uh, and certainly Biden didn't really push back too much, except he didn't like being uh, the, the, the racial accusation that she levied. But he could have easily pushed back and said, of course we let you do this. He didn't do that. I just thought there, here was a moment where he could have uh, had a little bit more of a heyday. Uh, I think maybe he was trying to be uh, overly, um, polite's the wrong word, gracious probably, because he knows that for the older white gentleman who is very comfortably saying that only Joe Biden can win against Donald Trump, he just has to be inoffensive. He's not going to be Bernie Sanders, who's going to come at you with a with a Brooklyn accent, a heavy Brooklyn accent, and and talk to you about why uh, a democratic socialist needs a revolution to change the party. Joe Biden is going to be comfortable, and he certainly didn't want to upturn that cart tonight. But for the people who are looking at this and wondering, did we see some better examples tonight? I think of those, Harris did the best. Job. I want to. There's two questions about uh, that I want to go to right now. I'm being reminded about Q and A just as I'm pulling them up. So thank you for the reminder. Was Kamal Harris speaking directly to people who felt Obama did not push enough with racial issues while he was president, pushing directly on Biden? I think that's exactly what he was doing. I, I really do think that's exactly what he was doing uh, because, uh, excuse me, what she was doing be, uh, because um, there there is this sense that Obama could have done more. And what we didn't get to tonight and what I would have loved to have seen tonight was a better answer from Joe Biden about the differences between what Donald Trump is doing at the border and what the Obama administration did at the border. He said in kind of this dismissive way, and Trump is so good at this, oh, I'm offended that you would even, I'm paraphrasing, I'm offended you would even make that comparison. That's not enough. We need to know why it's different. 
We need to know what the examples are. You know the law. Explain why it's different. Here's an, I, I've been making this impassioned plea. I want to have an emotional connection. But here's an example. You can pound these basic facts. Explain why the, the Obama administration wasn't doing anything compared to what the... Because it's a right-wing talking point. And leaving it unresolved is to admit it. And you cannot do that. Another question that's come in, voters of what age shopping for better options? I like that that question uh, a lot as well. I think I, I'm only speaking as myself. And one of the things that I'm never going to try to do here on At the Table is embrace the idea that I'm speaking for anybody else. But what I will say is this. I don't think voters at large, if the numbers are as low as they've been coming in in some of the state polls and national straw polls, and who knows how valuable they are really at this point, I think voters of every age are looking for something a little bit different if they're not saying they're locked in on Joe Biden at this point or Bernie Sanders or anybody else who might be a front runner. It's not any particular age bracket. I will say that people who are older, whiter, richer, more conservative in the Democratic Party are much more likely to like someone like Joe Biden because he represents everything that's made them comfortable for quite a long time. And he's not doing it in a way that really upturns the apple cart. He's not making them feel like anything needs to be done. He didn't really have a good answer, did he, the former vice president, for what about you saying that people won't have to necessarily change? They won't necessarily have to do anything differently. I'm not sure there's a good answer to that question because he was, he did say those things. I, I don't find it necessarily very convincing uh, that, that to, to just move right past it. So I, I, I'm, I'm heartened by tonight. I was really glad. Last night I, I walked away feeling that it was a bit tedious. I thought tonight there was, uh, but still lots of good ideas on the stage. I thought last night was interesting that everyone seemed to be comfortable playing by the rules. There was a lot less playing by the rules tonight. Uh, last night, uh, in both instances, it was the New Yorkers, I think, who uh, kind of, and as a New Yorker myself, I'll, I'll embrace this stereotype, kind of pushed up against it. It was de Blasio last night, Gillibrand tonight, willing to say, you know what, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to talk, uh, talk out of turn. I also mentioned Marianne Williamson, who I hate to even bring up again because she's such a waste of privilege uh, just standing up there and espousing nonsense. But she also had quite a bit of willingness to go in there. <laughs> And just say whatever the hell she had on her mind. Uh, but, you know, um, I guess, you know, uh, again, I am fascinated. If you are out there and you're a Williamson fan, please, at Jared Rizzi, I would love to know uh, what that's all about. What What's your life like? Who are you when you're at home? Because I I mean, I was joking about Delaney last night being someone who is like, you, you just, we, we don't know why you're even on the stage. But when I saw Williamson tonight, I thought this was, this was ludicrous. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about some of the other issues that percolated today in national politics that didn't make it onto the debate stage. And I want to emphasize not just 
the uh, the the issues that we talked about, and that's you know gun control, immigration, the environment got a lot of discussion tonight. Actually, a lot more. Governor Hickenlooper was really good, I thought, of everybody talking about some of the the, the facts and figures of climate change in a more responsible way than what we saw even last night with with Jay Inslee, Governor Inslee, trying to make headway on that issue. Um, but I thought, especially when we talk about the two Supreme Court decisions that came down, there was a, a bare acknowledgement of the Supreme Court decision about the census decision, the census, uh, uh, whether you can ask the citizenship question. And I think it was I think it was Michael Bennett who said that these people are being erased. I, I, I don't have that written down. I might be wrong about who said that. But somebody said that these people are trying to be erased. And, of course, the... The census is required every 10 years in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 2. Uh, the president said his lawyers are going to ask for a delay. Good luck there, buddy. Um, but the citizenship question is interesting because the, the court basically said, oh, we really don't like that you tried to do a racism, but we really didn't like the fact that you said you were doing the racism. Um, there was a bare acknowledgment of that on the debate stage tonight. There was, despite the fact that Senator Gillibrand had a lot of discussion about clean government, good governance policies, there wasn't a lot of discussion on the debate stage tonight about gerrymandering, which is, of course, the other big Supreme Court decision that we uh, saw today, uh, the, the Rucho v. Common Cause decision. And that decided along party lines, five to four, and more specifically, opening the floodgates right before a census take uh, on partisan gerrymandering, not racial gerrymandering, but on partisan gerrymandering, pushing it back to states and municipalities, saying, free for all, guys, you can do whatever you want when it comes to that stuff. Um, that is... Where was that on the debate stage tonight? I I wonder, are candidates assuming maybe that these are issues that don't trickle down to the average voter quickly enough and they can't potentially get everything they need to on a 60-second soundbite to, to make that case to somebody? I think voters voters are smarter than that, and they can and they can handle this new information. But maybe these are the tested things. I mean, look, I haven't run a successful campaign for president. That's why I'm sitting here talking to you. Uh, so I I was really disappointed. This is if we look at the, there's a straight line between Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, Shelby County v. Holder, and then today's decision, Rucho v. Common Cause where the, the federal courts will not protect us from majoritarian democracy and some of the problems that that can bring about. And even worse, it won't protect us from the tyranny of the minority when they have a lot of money and a big microphone to say whatever they want to say. Rucho seemed to be... The, the common cause decision today is the latest of these, but it seems like as long as the court is disposed the way it is, uh, that is going to be the trend line moving forward. But there is a, a very clear through line from Bush v. Gore to what we saw today, and that was not mentioned on the debate stage tonight. I have a couple more points, and, and then I'm going to wrap up for, for this uh, ver uh, episode of At the Table. Um, again, I'm Jared Rizzi. For seven years, I was White House correspondent. I'm having this conversation with you now because, frankly, this is uh, the best way that I can think of to share some of the thoughts that, that I've had and, and some of the experience that I have, but also just to be able to be real with people, to be able to 
talk about this in an emotionally impactful way. Um, this was this was the thought that I had today, and I'll share it with you. And I'd be interested if you have any any takes on it. We know the kind of candidate that thrives in the kind of debate environment that we saw for these last two nights. The kind of candidate that wins with this amount of noise, this cacophony, that kind of candidate is in the White House right now. Democrats need to consolidate this field as quickly as possible. And I don't know how that happens, and maybe it won't happen for a very long time. We've got months till the first votes in Iowa. And there is so little incentive with the incumbent in as much trouble as he's in and his poll numbers as bad as they are and the head-to-head matchups, however valuable they may be at this point, showing just about any Democrat, not just Joe Biden and Senator Sanders, uh, any Democrat being able to trounce him uh, in a general election. But we know that these moments do not bear out real debate they don't make us a lot smarter i'm glad that you're spending a little bit of time with me because i feel like that is the greatest gift you can give is to spend a little time and maybe we make each other a little bit smarter but i don't think those debates as much as i was happy about some of the emotional pleas that we heard tonight as much as i was glad to see someone like harris shine the way i think um she really deserved to and and embrace the field and take it drag it kicking and screaming in the direction direction that she wanted it to go i don't think we learned a lot and i wonder how long that can last because that way lies the madness that currently exists in the white house Uh, another question or no i'm sorry i'm specifically being told it's not a question it's a comment uh julie says it's all tedious the whole administration is tedious this process is going to be tedious well thank you julie for that tear down uh but it's so very necessary especially now she writes uh, and especially at this place where boomers are meeting millennials who will rise to the top well first of all um, I'm glad that you excluded the Generation X because they are, as, as, as everyone knows, useless. Um, and I'm also glad that you um, mentioned boomers and millennials because that was the distinction that we saw most poignantly on the stage today between the Swalwells and Buttigieg's and the Bidens and the Sanderses. But I think as these men basically drop what they're packing in front of the table on each, at each other, the women really cut through. And I was very happy to see, especially not, not Marion Williamson, no, not Marion Williamson, but Senator Harris, Senator Gillibrand. I was very happy to see a little bit more cut through. So who, who happens, uh, who comes out on top? Hopefully some of these women, because frankly, uh, last night and tonight, there were a lot of really excellent female voices being heard, uh, and people will start to take notice. If, there, if there's anything we've learned from the last cycle uh, and, the, and what we've seen in the diversity of this cycle, it's that uh, people are not just ready for this kind of uh, a different candidate, uh, different in the, the most human of ways, uh, but, but eager to see where that experience takes us, where those people bring us, what experiences and emotional connections are only available through that perspective of human experience. 
There's a real benefit there. Diversity is not just something we toss around casually. It's, it's something that provides genuine benefit to the field, to the voting bloc. At one point, Senator Sanders says, we're different than the Republicans. They're the ones who are trying to be a monolith on race. And, and, and this was right before he said, but it takes guts, and that's why a 70-something-year-old white guy should be the nominee anyway. But his point about diversity was real, is that there's a very distinct difference between the two parties right now on how they're treating these issues of race. And gender as well. And we saw Senators Gillibrand and Harris on issues like Roe and other questions, uh, criminal justice reform. I thought it was fascinating how Senator Harris made that about uh, gender as well, talking about experience as a mother and making sure that families and kids have a fair shake. All these things were better because of the female voices at the podiums uh, on, on the dais tonight in Miami. So... Uh, I, I, I think the answer is fundamentally we get more voices out there and maybe they consolidate because, again, the kind of candidate that thrives in this environment is the kind of candidate who gets cheap applause lines, uh, likes to rally around bumper sticker slogans. That's not how governance works. It hasn't been uh, a very positive experience for most of us uh, the last two years, and it's certainly something that uh, most of these candidates say they want to end. So with that, I am going to end. I'm Jared Rizzi. This is At the Table. It's a new podcast I'm putting together. Uh, Subscribe, if you will. I think it's available on a couple of the platforms. It's going to be available on more as time passes. And again, at Jared Rizzi is where I exist on Twitter. Your feedback is always welcome. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with you as you join me at the table.